If you have a copy of your scriptures, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We will be studying verses 1 through 15. If you haven't been with us, I know some of you are new here or just visiting. We've been going through the book of Jeremiah. If you, when you read the book of Jeremiah, remember it's not in chronological order. Remember that multiple times the scroll was torn up by kings because people did not want Jeremiah to give his prophecy and he kept rewriting it. He goes to Egypt and he rewrites it again. That's why there's multiple copies everywhere. The first 29 chapters seem to be doom and gloom. And the last 20 so chapters are doom and gloom. But in the middle of the book of Jeremiah is a lot of hope. And God is reminding the people in Jeremiah, if you love me, if you believe in me, not obey me perfectly. Remember, there were sacrifices for those who didn't obey perfectly. There was grace. But if you love me, if you give me your heart, if you trust in the Redeemer that's going to come, you can live in this land. Because God gives us promises. Well, the flip side of that promise was, if you turn your heart from me, if you worship false gods, if you practice idolatry, if you keep sacrificing children, you will be exiled. Much like the baptism we will see this evening, God gives us promises. As long as you trust in me and love me and give your heart to me and trust in Christ, I will always be your God. But as Pastor David will share with us, there comes a time where you quit trusting in Christ, you will be cut off from the land of the living. God is serious about his promises. And we have a passage of scripture here where we see when everyone else is not believing, they're running away because... Babylon is going to destroy the city. Jeremiah may be doing one of the dumbest things that he's done in all of the book. He decides to buy a piece of property in the very land that is being overrun by another army. So let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. And let's ask the Lord to teach us as we study Jeremiah chapter 32. Father, we come before you today. And we praise you for men like Jeremiah. Men that were often standing by themselves and the whole world thought they were lunatics. But yet they did what was right. Men and women have continued to live a life like Jeremiah. Chose to do what you wanted them to do when the world thought it was silly. And Father, we pray that we would learn from Jeremiah, that we would see your son Christ. We pray, oh God, that we would be men and women that would walk away, teenagers and children, that we would walk away believing that Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and one day we will be with him forever. And what we do on this earth and the way we live really does matter. Help us see that in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am given this city into the hand of the king of Babylon? And he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the 
hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the seal's deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And thus is the reading of the very word of God. Many of you have heard of David Hume. He was an 18th century philosopher. If you study any philosophy, you still deal with David Hume and what he wrote. He was a deist. He was a humanist. Did not believe in the truths of the gospel nor the scriptures. And right before the American Revolution, he was hurrying on the streets of London. And someone said, why are you rushing off so fast? He says, I need to go hear George Whitfield." And the man looked and said, you don't believe what George Whitfield preaches, do you? David Hume replied, no, but he sure does. <laughs> Whitfield had a way of preaching. No one questioned what Whitfield believed. What he preached, he believed, and what he believed, he, he lived. Jeremiah, in this passage, is putting his money where his mouth is. He says he believes in the new covenant, that God is going to bring the lost tribes of Israel that no one thought even existed. How is he going to bring them with those who were exiled in Babylon back to the land under King David, which there will be no king anymore, Zedekiah will be gone. How is this going to happen? Jeremiah believed it would. Believed it to the point he was willing to spend his money, possibly his very last, to buy a piece of property that was worthless. When everybody else is running out of the city, he's actually purchasing property in that very city. And if you're taking notes, there's three things I want you to see. One is the background. I hate to get nerdy on you, but we're going to talk a little bit about, about the background that's happening in there. The second thing is the test. God is going to test Jeremiah. He's going to come to him in a vision. His cousin's going to come. Is Jeremiah going to buy the land or not? Is he going to obey the Lord? 
And the third thing we'll see is the decision. What decision does he make? The background, the test, and the decision. As we look at the background, some of you kids may remember the story of Jonah. Such a great story, right? The, the, the whale swallows the man. Jonah's on his way to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, which is a very wicked nation. As a matter of fact, it's a very violent nation. Assyria has teamed up with Egypt. Remember Egypt, over 400 years, they enslaved Israel. They teamed up to form this great superpower. And because they made a lot of enemies in the world, the Babylonians had teamed up with the Medes and the Scythians. And they were going to fight it out to see who the world champion was going to be in the whole entire empire. Who was going to be the greatest nation in the entire land and control the whole known world. In 605, we call that the Battle of Carchemish. That's where Assyrian forces, Egyptian forces fought the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, which was the Babylonians, Mede, and the Scythians. There's this massive battle. And as you know, in 605, Babylon won. Syria doesn't even exist. Egypt went back afraid. And the son of the king named his son after Nabu, which was the false god, son of Nabu, which is Nebuchadnezzar. He comes into power in 605, which leads us to this passage. Nebuchadnezzar comes off this great victory. He has power in the world. And if you continue to read through the Old Testament, you know Nebuchadnezzar because you read Daniel and what he's like. But we read verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, preachers have a bad habit of telling you, well, we can read the Ugaritic language and read the history of the, the annals of the king of Nebuchadnezzar, but you know, the scripture is a history book too. Oftentimes when there's debate between this date and this date, well, you know, the history books have that date. I was like, well, what makes them inerrant? And the Bible's not. The good thing is all history agrees with the scripture here. All the dates are right. You know, King Zedekiah came into power at 597 BC. He was propped into power. And if you like bad kings, this is probably my favorite bad king because he actually, like, he tries to fight to the very end, even though he's wicked. Like, he actually at least tries. 597, he comes into power. And in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar and the 10th year of Zedekiah, that would make, if you do your math, 587 B.C. I can do 10s. It's really easy. 587 B.C. And if you know what takes place in 586 B.C., you know that's one year before. And it's really important to understand what's taking place in 586 B.C. Babylon will completely destroy and annihilate the city of Jerusalem. The walls will come down. The temple will be destroyed. That beautiful temple that Solomon built where the Queen of Sheba came to visit. The whole world was in awe of this temple. It would be destroyed in 586 B.C. It would be a terrible time. And you read verse 2. 
At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. See, to understand this passage, you have to understand siege warfare. It's not fun warfare. They just don't drop a missile, and that would probably be better than a siege. Because what they do in a siege is they surround the city. No one's allowed in. No one's allowed out. No food in. No waste out. There was a reason that there was a, a wasteland outside of Jerusalem. There's a reason that Golgotha, and the, they, they burnt waste there. So you can imagine in siege warfare, not only were people starving to death, they were going insane, there's no water to drink, people would die of sickness. They would be so sick and almost dead that when the army came in to finally take the city, there wouldn't be a war. There was no one there to fight, they have no energy, and they were sick. That was the purpose of siege warfare. That's why Josephus says about the next siege of Jerusalem, it was best that nobody was there. That's why Jesus warns people to get out of the city, because siege warfare is never fun. Babylon is in the process of sieging Jerusalem. And look at the rest of verse 2 here. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, for Zedekiah king of Judah had imprisoned him. Just so you know, chapter 37 and 38 will outline an entire chapter of what happened to Jeremiah here, so I'm not really going to get into the detail of why he was thrown into prison, but it's a really fun story. But I will share this. This is what he was saying, and it really got under the skin of the king Zedekiah. Zedekiah couldn't stand him. Zedekiah says, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am given the city into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Even in prison, God is still speaking through Jeremiah. Calvin would say the prophet declares here, although he was shut up in prison, the word of God was not bound. If you remember when I went through Jeremiah for our Old Testament survey, I couldn't put this on the paper because it's really not couth, you could say, but the whole, really a lot of the purpose of Jeremiah is he will not be shut up. Everyone that reads his prophecy and hears his prophecy tries to get rid of it. But God still speaks. Even today, he is speaking through Jeremiah the prophet to us today. Because his word is powerful and you can't stop his word. Even if you're in prison walls, just know the, the word of the Lord is going to stand forever. That is the situation. That's the background. Jeremiah is in jail. The army of Babylon is sieging the city, which brings us to the test, the second part of the sermon. And this test is a, some would say is a silly act on behalf of Jeremiah. Who on earth would purchase property that is worthless? Who on earth would do that? It's almost silly. It's like one of his sign acts. Remember the, the belt, the sash that he had that got really filthy and dirty and the, he smashes the pottery and he takes the yoke bars and goes into the United Nations meeting with these yoke bars. It seems that the prophets do things that are crazy, and people call themselves prophets. You're like, you don't have nothing on these crazy people. Right? This is another crazy act. He's literally purchasing property that's worth absolutely nothing. 
because he believes in the Lord. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Somehow God gave him revelation. In times past, he spoke through the prophets, he spoke through visions, he spoke through dreams, but now in these days, he speaks to us through his son Christ and special revelation through his word. But the word of the Lord came to me, he said, and behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. He had to have some type of sign or probably never would have done it. Because it had been unwise. Kind of like Joseph putting away Mary, what, very quietly. Right? He needed to know. And God in his grace says, your cousin is going to come and sell you this property. And just so you understand, there's only a small window of time for Hananel to sell him this property. Just so you understand, there was rumors going around that Zedekiah was teaming up with Egypt to fight Babylon as they're sieging the city. And it wasn't just rumors. If you read in Ezekiel 17, it shares the story. Just so you know, Ezekiel was another prophet that was sent to Babylon with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and with, with Daniel. He's there. And he tells us in 1717 that, that Pharaoh and his mighty army is not going to help you, Zedekiah. And it seems that everyone always had their heart turned to other gods, especially the gods of Egypt, thinking, well, maybe they can help us. When really, he should have been like Hezekiah, repented and just trusted in the Lord. Hanamel, this cousin, is also often seen as slimy. Um, I would put him in the same category as the innkeeper when Joseph and Mary needed a place to stay. And when you read that story, what do you think in your mind? There's no room for you. Go out there. Well, I don't, we don't really know if he said that. Maybe, maybe he was helping them because there was no room in the inn. So he, so he gave him a special place to stay. But we see him as a slimy man. Whenever you listen to preachers or read commentary, Hannah Mel's made out to be one of the worst figures in all of scriptural, the slimy cousin that's trying to sell him a piece of property that's worthless. And maybe so, maybe not. But I will say this. Jeremiah 12 tells us that his brothers and the house of his fathers wanted to kill him. So I can see why people would say that he's kind of slimy. He's probably with his family, wanted him dead. Um, Jeremiah was a stain on their reputation as a bunch of Levites. And here he is trying to sell this property to Jeremiah. And you may think, well, wait a minute. Did you just say he's a Levite? How does he get property? Well, just so you know, the Levites, though they were not given property when they made it to the promised land, they were allowed to marry other tribes people, people from Benjamin, people from Judah. They could intermarry, and oftentimes when they intermarried, they would receive property in that marriage. And Anathoth was a special place because it was loud in the, in the law. A lot of the priests would take their money, and they would go buy a little field and have some goats and some land there to get away from Jerusalem as a place of relaxation. That land was to stay in the family. The one thing that we read in Leviticus is that all the land should always stay in the family because it was so connected to the promises of God. That land was connected to the promises of God. It was a picture of heaven, and it was a stay in the family. And every year of Jubilee, even if you sold it to someone else, it would go back to the family. And he says here in this passage of Scripture, Hananel says this, 
my cousin came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he says, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Hananel was put into practice the kinsman redeemer law. As a matter of fact, it's the same word. Uh, Goel is not used, but it's the, the, the same passage and the same word here. The responsibility to act on behalf of a family member who was in trouble. And Hananel says, you need to buy my field. If you don't know where Anathoth is, it's really interesting because it's three miles northeast of the gate of Jerusalem maybe just right past the Mount of Olives. And it was pasture land. And this is where the Babylonians would have set up their tents. I don't know if you've ever been to a carnival or a festival when everything's gone. Doesn't look very nice. There's just trash everywhere. It's trashed. This is what Anathoth would have looked like for those 30 days just when Babylon was gone. The land is worthless. And he comes to Jeremiah and says, you need to buy my land. The question is, what is Jeremiah going to do? And the truth is this. It's just theoretical until he has to put his faith to practice. His faith is just theoretical until he has to put it to practice. His belief that God is going to come and bring them back to the land, it's just theory until this test comes. It's just theory until he has to pull out his pocketbook and actually write a check. I think about our faith. We believe in the afterlife. We believe in the judgment of the Lord. We believe that we will stand and give an account for all that we do. We believe that we're going to live in eternity and this life is but a vapor that appears for a while. We believe that, and it's all just theoretical to what? We have to put our faith to practice. We have to pull out our checkbook. It's theory until we have to stand for Christ. It's theoretical until what? You're called to love your enemy. It's theoretical until you have to sacrifice your pleasure for Christ. The question is, do we really believe that we will spend eternity with God forever? Can a humanist look at us like David Humes looked at Whitfield and say, you know what, I may not believe what they believe, but they sure do. They really do believe in the afterlife. They really do believe that Christ has paid for their sins and they will live with them forever. We've seen the situation. We've seen this testing. And now we get to see the decision. You kind of know what he's going to do. He's Jeremiah the prophet. But what decision does he make? Look at verse 9. Jeremiah says, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. You don't know how much that is? People try to pretend they know how much it is. I'm not even going to pretend. We don't know how much it is. But I guarantee you, Jeremiah wasn't made of money. We don't know how much money he actually had. We know he wasn't made of money. We know that you weighed money in those days. Our nickels probably aren't worth much now, but they actually had real silver in their money, so they would weigh the money. Verse 10, I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the silver, or weighed the money on the scales. 
Then I took the seal deed of purchase. That's his seal, probably like a notary. If you ever buy a house, you've got these two stacks of paper. One goes to the lawyers in the state. You get to take one home. Same situation for everyone. You had to make sure there was a seal on it that, that was actually done in the right and proper order. He does everything in the right way. I took the seal deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting at the court of the guard. This had to be public. Not only was it public, Jeremiah wanted the people to know, I'm not ashamed of what I'm doing. You may think what I'm doing is foolish, but what I am doing is pleasing to God. Do you see how we, we do that quite often? What people think we do is foolish. We know the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe, but to us who believe and are being saved, it's the it's the power of God. Is it really foolishness to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead? No, it's not. It's the truth. There's power in that message. Though the world sees this as foolish and the world thought, Jeremiah, you're foolish, he's let everyone know. And not only does everyone going to know, look at verse 13. I charged Baruch in their presence saying, and Baruch was his secretary I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought in this land. I need to tell you about this earthenware vessel. If you remember the Dead Sea Scrolls, copies of the Old Testament, especially the scroll of Isaiah, written probably 2nd century BC, 200 years before Jesus Christ comes, we're talking about really old documents. They put them in an earthenware vessel. What they would do is kind of like clay, and if you've ever shrink-wrapped or you ever put uh, food inside of the food processor, my wife has one, you hit the button, and it, and it gets all the air out of it, right? And you can put it in the freezer, and it never gets freezer burned. It lasts for like 100 years, right? Probably not, but anyway. This is what an earthenware vessel was. Somehow they, they took this clay, and they put it in fire, and it sucks all the oxygen on and moisture out. And when they went to the Qumran caves there in 1947, they crack open these earthenware vessels and it's like it's never been touched. The weather doesn't get to it. The moisture doesn't get to it. It's like they're holding a piece of history that is in mint condition because of these earthenware vessels. And the truth is, God wants everyone to know forever the faith of Jeremiah. Let me tell you this. This is what God does with the deeds we do for him. 
the crowns that we earn, that we will place at the feet of Jesus. Every dollar that we give, every diaper that we change, every time you hold your tongue, every prayer you pray, every time you share the gospel, every time you cook a meal for someone, every time someone comes to your church and they're crying and you give them a hug and you say, God loves you, I'm going to weep with you, I'm going to help you. Every time you play instruments or sing, anytime you love the unlovable, anytime you do anything for the glory of God, and you never get your reward here on earth, which is the majority of what we do, guess what? Earthenware vessel. He puts it in that vessel, and you will get that back. You'll get a crown, and you'll be able to give that back to the Lord. He doesn't forget your acts of faith. He's not going to let Jeremiah's act of faith be forgotten, and he will not let our acts of faith be forgotten. As we close, I want you to think about this act of faith of Jeremiah. He buys this field. And the reality is he's old. He knows he will be in Babylon for 70 years. He doesn't even make it to Babylon. He gets captured and taken to Egypt, the place that he can't stand. But he knows he'll never live in this field that he purchases. But he still does it anyway. That's the type of faith he has. Remember like Joseph, I'll never make it to the promised land, but you've got to promise me when you go, you better take my bones. I want my bones there when they're resurrected. I want to be there. This is the type of faith Jeremiah had. And it's all theoretical until you have to put it into practice. And my prayer is that you will put your faith into practice. The very thing you claim to believe that we will live with Jesus forever and eternity I pray and hope that you remember that God makes promises. He keeps them. Not only does he keep them, but if you really believe that, I pray and hope someone will say, you know, I may not believe what they believe, but they sure do. They live it out. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word.